Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Mr. O'Leary was, I don't need to tell you, he was uh, he was going to be the one who would challenge Justin Trudeau for the prime minister's job in 2019. That's what he told us when he entered the race. And even prior to the race, he knew that Mr. O'Leary was keenly interested in getting into this. And then uh, a couple of days ago, we found out, uh, and much of the country was surprised, that Kevin O'Leary has decided that this is not the the route he's going to uh, follow, and it has to do with, if not Canada, it has to do with Quebec. Mr. O'Leary, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. And in our first conversation, you expressed no concern about uh, being able to reach Quebec voters who you were confident would choose Kevin O'Leary in 2019, or at least give you a good percentage of the, of the vote. What happened? Well, you know, I'm a numbers guy, and um, in, in business and certainly in politics, I like to use analytics. And so let me tell you what I started doing. Most campaigns, when they do polling, um, will use data sets of 1,500 to 2,500 people, and that yields a margin of error of 2.5%. So in a close race, in my opinion, that's useless data because for Bernier and I, in most provinces, we were 1% to 2 to 3% between each other. So that's useless data for me. I decided to step it up a notch and start sampling eight to 9,000 at a time, which yields a margin of error of 0.9, so very, very useful data. And what I learned was very interesting. Um, I was leading Max in most jurisdictions between at par in places like British Columbia, in other words, neck and neck in B.C., but as much as 4% in places like um, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and I was beating him in Ontario by at least 2%. And he knew it. My problem, and so I, I actually got to a place where I knew I was going to win with the high statistical error in the 7th to 13th because not only did my polling give me first ballot support, I looked at the data for second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, because, you know, that's what I am. I'm a numbers guy. Here's what dogged me, and here was the ultimate dilemma, and I'll share it with you now. I made the assumption, obviously incorrectly, that because I was born in Montreal, I could probably count on 20% of Quebec. Not an unreasonable assumption in my view, and I was trying to learn French, etc. And, you know... Maybe that was optimistic, but within, you know, 17 to 20. But I never polled better than 12. And in recent polls, 11. So here was the dilemma I faced. Could I go in good conscience and win the leadership, knowing with certainty that my probability of getting 30 seats in Quebec was extremely low? Because if you do the math, and this is, again, I'm being a numbers guy, we have 12 seats there now. Okay, if I'd had 20% support, I would have kept those. That would have been a good analogy. I didn't have that. I had 11. So I have to, I have to add another 30 seats to the additional 12 to make it a contest with Trudeau. And how was I going to get there? That was the question. Now you could say maybe a black swan event. Maybe I should be more optimistic. But I wanted to see a path because sitting in front of me in my office is the war room with a writing map in it. I could see the path in every other jurisdiction in Canada that I'd be Trudeau. But I had to figure out Quebec. And people would say, well, what about in 2011 when Harper won a majority mandate and only got, he got seven seats in Quebec? Here's what happened then, and this was the killer. Some of you will remember Jack Layton, the charismatic NDPer. 
he captured the hearts and minds of Quebecers like never seen before. It was a unique Black Swan event. And then for Harper's Luck, just from randomly this occurs, the block carries the other half of the province, basically neutering Quebec from the federal election. There was no support for liberals or conservatives. It was all split between Leighton, or the, the lion's share between Leighton's and the, blo- and the bloc. That's how Harper snuck through. That's like flipping a coin in Quebec and having it land on its side. The truth about Quebec is it is an extremely powerful political force, because I call it the Florida of Canada. Those 78 seats have historically decided elections over and over and over again in federal contests. So I had to have a plan. Now, I tried out several things. One of them was I called one of Maxime's guys, because I knew the whole team, and we'd been in touch during the whole, you know, we were neck and neck. We were competitive, but friendly competitive. I liked his policies, obviously, with the majority of them I supported. I called one of his stat, stat guys who I got to know and said, look, is there any chance Max would consider stepping down and campaign for me in Quebec? Because he knows he's going to lose. And that was a bold move, but worth doing, because what's... You could say no, but I just thought he, he's got the same data I have. He, his team was polling the same way I was, big data sets. He knew exactly where I stood. And I was hoping he'd consider that. He called me back and said, that's not going to happen. Not because I wouldn't consider it, because that is not going to be the way to win 40 seats in Quebec. You have to have a leader to get those seats. There hasn't been, you know... Uh, a, a federal win since Diefenbaker in a non-French-speaking person. I, I said, that's true, but Max, if you help me campaign, maybe you could solve that problem. So that, that avenue wasn't available to me. And then Max said, look, Kevin, you're going to have one hell of a night's sleep. You're going to have to make a decision like this. How selfish are you? Are you going to take this leadership win, knowing your probability of winning against Trudeau is very low because of your problem in getting the numbers? Or are you going to do the right thing for the party? That was what I had to face. So I started calling around to some of my advisors and asking what they thought, including, you know, MPs, caucus, etc., who also knew the numbers. Everybody knew the numbers. It was really down to... Do I do this for myself, or do I do it for the sake of the party? Because if I fold my support into Max, and here's the thing you need to know. In my data, it told me that over 50% of the people that voted for me had Bernier for number two on my ballot. So the power I had as a kingmaker was extreme. If I gave my support to Bernier, and he only got 21% of my people, he would be guaranteed a win. Now, ask yourself this question of all the candidates out there, all of them, and they're all fine men and women, every one of them. Which one of them has the highest probability of winning 30 new seats in Quebec? Because that is the number. That is the number. You want to take down Trudeau? you got to bifurcate his support in Quebec. You have right. to get let, half. Now, let, me take you a, let, let me take a quick break, and we'll come back. We'll talk more with uh, Kevin O'Leary. And I have some questions for Mr. O'Leary about Quebec and about the dynamics of an election campaign. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Mr. O'Leary decided a couple of days ago, or at least Canada found out a couple of days ago, that he's not going to be following through and pursuing the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada and thereafter uh, leading the party in the 2019 federal election against 
Justin Trudeau and whoever the NDP decide will be their leader. Mr. O'Leary, I have just a few minutes. I wanted to hear exactly, I want to give you as much time as you wanted and needed to tell us why you weren't running. I have some questions to ask you now. Given the fact of an election campaign and how dynamics can change dramatically, don't you think there would have been opportunity for you to gain traction in Quebec, increase your traction in the rest of the country, uh, depending on what happened during the election? If, if Justin Trudeau misstepped badly, that would have been an opportunity for you. I certainly looked at that, and I didn't have to worry about gaining more traction in the rest of the country. I had it. I had fantastic support. So I really focused on the potential outcomes of what would occur in Quebec. And I went back and looked at the data, as I always do, grinding through the 2011 results. And so what I had to make the assumption, and, and the best of the rest of the party and some of the caucus had to make this assumption too, is could we put a probability on how large the NDB could get in Quebec, because I don't think the bloc is going to be a factor. Because right now, Trudeau is immensely popular in Quebec. He owns that province. So he would have to have an erosion of about 65% of his support. Some of that would have to go to the NDP, and the rest would have to come to us. The likelihood of that with Kevin O'Leary's leadership is low. Now, I'm not saying that I couldn't have done it. It's not impossible. And selfishly, I kind of got myself thinking, I'll I'll figure it out. I'll I'll learn how to speak French. I'll be able to debate him in 15 months. But there was a ton of risk in that assumption, because if we didn't get a big, strong, charismatic leader in the NDP there, and we were just facing Trudeau alone, I think he would have smoked me there. And you have to ask yourself, what... What other options are there? You know, this, I make these decisions every day in financial markets. What, what's the risk assessment? Yeah, no, I, I understand. I do have to ask you some other questions, though. What about the other contenders in the party? How did they feel about What's their reaction to Kevin O'Leary deciding he's not going to run and deliver his support to Maxime Bernier? I would imagine Mr. Bernier is pretty happy. Well, it had, I had all their data, too. I was polling for I, my polls. I included them all. So... I knew exactly where Shear stood, where O'Toole was, where Kelly was. They were so far behind. Bernier and I had, in some jurisdictions, 64% of the vote between us. So you have little doubt that Max Bernier is going to be the leader of the Conservative Party? I just made him the leader. The probability that he doesn't win is less than 2%. And he's going to get it. I can tell you he will get it somewhere between the 4th and 7th ballot. Will you be running in 2019, and uh, have you had conversations with Mr. Bernier about that? You know, I told Max, because we had a very, very late night um, 48 hours ago. We were up till very late in the morning. I said, look, Max, there's three steps here. A, we've got to get get out the vote, because I sold 35,336 votes or members. We have to combine our teams and go get all of And he had 30,000 too, so 60,000 ballots out there. We've got to get those people to vote. That's number one. Otherwise, I just wasted this effort with you. Number two, you have to figure out how to get 30 seats in Quebec, and I have to find a way to get you 40% of the people between the ages of 18 and 35 to vote for the Conservative Party. Those two things come together in the next 15 months. We beat Trudeau. I will do anything in my power to be Trudeau, anything. I'm, does, that I'm not mean, does, does that mean you would consider running, or have you decided to It'll be to Max's run? decision. The caucus and Max will decide. Right now, my biggest value for the Conservative Party is twofold. 
getting young people to come and listen to the Conservative Party. We've never had a member that could get a thousand students out to university like Queens or UBC, which I can do. And this new role that's emerged in the last week, which is remarkable, I've become a spokesperson for Canada on American network television in the trade war discussions and the renegotiation of NAFTA. In a strange, bizarre twist of fate on Tuesday, NBC called me to New York for a one-hour discussion in an international broadcast to represent Canada right beside Minister Freeland. What a weird outcome that was. That's pretty strange. It now, was, now, do, do, do I understand, though, correctly, and I'm looking at the clock, but do I understand correctly that if Maxime Bernier and if the party says to you, we want you to run in 2019, we need you to be part of the team, a visible part of the team, will you do it? You know, I talked with yes, King on Freeland right here in my home riding of Rosedale, Crombie was the last conservative ever got any traction here, but it's real. Uh, my, uh, I said all options are open. I would love to take her. Uh, it would be a fantastic contest. I'm sure she'd enjoy it. I have a lot of respect for her, by the way. We're on other sides of the political spectrum, but we both fought for Canada uh, on Tuesday, and it was a remarkable outcome because we didn't know we were going to be on together. But she's, she, we met, we both made the same point. So. You know, all things in politics can be very strange, but as can, you know, country first, that's for both of us. Now, but who are you, who are you talking about? Because the line went wonky there. Who are you talking about? I was talking about Minister Freeland and I okay. pounding the table for Canada on network television in the U.S. Country first, we said to each other. Let's leave our political differences aside. And that's what happened. But, you know, as far as I, I told Max, keep all options open. What do you want me to do? I don't want to waste the time and effort and money I put into this and not see, and see Trudeau continue in a second mandate. I'm going to do everything in my power to get rid of him. I've read some reports. I've heard some reports. You probably have as well. But people on the left of the spectrum, and you attack them pretty vigorously, they're now laughing and accusing you of saying no mas before the bell for the first round sounded. What do you say to them? Listen, there's always going to be critics. I guide myself with the data and the probability of winning and beating Trudeau. The whole party is united that way. Many, many caucus members have said to me, you did the unselfish thing. You did the right thing. You took a huge hit in the press for it, but you've increased the probability that the party will beat Trudeau by 50%. They have the data, too. We are going to kick Trudeau out of Ottawa. That's the goal. Now, does this hurt? Are you kidding? I like to win, but I have to have a path to success. I have to know I have a high probability to get there. Yeah. If you know the numbers don't stack in your favor, you have to realign yourselves to get those numbers to work for you. With Bernier, the probability of winning a majority mandate increases double because he can get 30 new I, I get. Back. I get the fact that you're a numbers guy. Now, somebody also asked, and I have to ask you this, what happens to the memberships or the money that people dedicated to your campaign to run for the leadership of the Conservative Party? What happens with that? They have one goal, too. They want to win. They want a majority mandate. I mean, they ask themselves, does it matter if wins the majority mandate or Max Bernier? Let's remember, for this party, I did two things remarkable. I got the press to start following the race, number one. Number two, I sold 35,000 young people, the majority under the age of 35. And I'll add a third to it. I cleaned up the polling process. There's no fraudulent votes anymore in right. of 200. Mr. O'Leary, I have, to, I have to stop you because the, the sound, the, the audio has become, it's almost impossible to understand you. But I do thank you for taking the time to speak to us today after that huge decision you made earlier in the week. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. There's Kevin O'Leary. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
After the Ontario Liberals brought down their budget and started bragging about it being balanced. I uh, tweeted this, Ontario's debt tripled since the Liberals assumed governing. Then there's the heartless disregard for the poor whose lights and heat they shut off. And another tweet that I had out was, um, the PCs should hand out copies of the Auditor General's report of the financial pit Liberals have dug for taxpayers. There was a follow-up tweet from Patrick Brown, the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party leader. Uh, where do we even start? Billions wasted by the Ontario Liberals on the gas plant scandal, smart meters, e-health, and bad hydro contracts. There's a wish list for you. And joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network is Patrick Brown, the uh, leader of the Conservative Party, of uh, Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. Mr. Brown, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's quite a shopping list, isn't it, of, uh, of what the Liberals have done to, instead of for, the voters in Ontario, uh, now they're bragging that the budget is balanced. Specifically, the response from you to, uh, to the Premier is? Well, 14 years of fleecing taxpayers, of fleecing Ontario, uh, the fact that Kathleen Wynne has the gall to try to sell this as a balanced budget, make no mistake about this, this is not a balanced budget. This is a house of cards. It is fictitious. They are misleading people. Our debt is going to raise. In what world... They say we have balanced books, and debt is still spiraling. When they took over, debt was $138 billion. It's going to be $312 billion at the end of this year, $323 billion next year. We owe more than any province or state in the world. And in this budget, they're double-counting money. They're doing all this spending off-budget. What does that even mean, off-budget? No idea. No idea. It's, it's a scam. It, it, and that's why I, I don't call Charles Souza the finance minister at Queen's Park. We've nicknamed him Chef Souza because he is so brilliant <laughs> at cooking the books and trying to mislead people. But we're calling him out on it. You know, Ontarians deserve to know that they have a government that has taken them deeply, deeply into debt. Uh, and no wonder our credit's been downgraded. No wonder we're a have-not province. We get handouts from other provinces because this team, this liberal team of Dalton McGinty and Kathleen Wynne and Charles Souza, they've bankrupted our province. You know, I don't understand how the Liberal Party would feel that the voters of this province would be sufficiently uninformed and sufficiently uninvolved that they would be buying this soup that they're selling or whatever it is that they've cooked up. Um, but I, I, I don't know, Mr. Brown. Uh, what's the where's the most vulnerable? Well. It's maybe a silly question, but where are the Liberals most vulnerable? Is it in their financial performance? See, see, here's the thing. They use your money to advertise this propaganda. We're in the age of liberal government propaganda. They, they spend millions and millions on taxpayer-funded ads, partisan ads, patting themselves on the back to sell these lies. And here's the problem, uh, Roy, is that you, you, get, you get the Auditor General, the Financial Accountability Officer, seeing the government's numbers do not add up. This is a fictitious, these are fictitious numbers. And, you know, a lot of the media don't cover that. You know, I would have hoped that the front page of every paper would have said, you know, government cooking their books. And because, I don't know, you trust Charles Souza, Chef Souza, or do you trust the Auditor General? I'll trust the Auditor General seven days out of seven. And we also know that the Liberal government uh, shouts down, tries to shout down the Auditor General. So when you have a government that is in open conflict with your Auditor General, that's not a good thing. It's unbelievable. And some of the things the Auditor General has pointed out, you know, if any other government tried to attempt this, it would be a scandal. You know, they're, they're counting 
pension surplus funds from the teachers in OPSU as government revenue. The Auditor General said, you're not allowed to do that. They're double-counting cap-and-trade money. They're double-counting the Trudeau infrastructure money. They're playing so many games here, it's unbelievable. And by the way, their hydro plan, which is not really a plan, it's just borrowing. It's their borrowing plan. That $2.5 billion cost for borrowing, they're just putting on OPG. They're hiding all this debt. And, and it's frustrating because I see them taking this great, mighty province, this province that led Canada in led you know, this province that led Canada in job creation uh, for much of our national history, and, and they're pulling us down to the bottom. They're pulling us to a province that is really, really struggling. We got to turn the ship around. Well, it's liberal math as usual. But if you're elected as the next premier of the province, what do you have to do? What do you have no choice in doing? to dig the province, start to dig the province out of the financial hole the Liberals have created over the last 14 years? Well, well, let me say, first of all, the starting point is we're going to tell people the truth. We're going to tell them exactly what the numbers are. No no more games like this. Yeah, but you know it's hard to convince people to listen to what politicians have to say, particularly after an election if if they blame the previous government. Well, I'm going to say we believe the Auditor General. We, We believe the independent, nonpartisan legislative oversight. The second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to do a value-for-money audit on every single ministry. Because you tell me a ministry, I can tell you examples of egregious waste. You look in health where they're about to hire 80 new executive vice presidents, uh, hundred, multi, several hundred thousand dollar paper pushers. Uh, you, know, you, look at, uh, you look at Hydro where you know, we're paying Hydro execs 10 times, $4.5 million for the Hydro One seal, 10 times what they pay in Quebec or British Columbia. Why do we have to pay people 10 times the amount to work in Ontario? One thing that I'd absolutely do right off the bat, I'd rip up the Green Energy Act, or I like to call it the Bad Contracts Act, where they have overpaid $9.2 billion on bad deals. Bad deals the Liberal Party benefited for, but the people of Ontario are hurting from. You know, there are so many things I do right off the bat. That there are opportunities to get this province back on track. Yeah. Um, and that's why I say, you name a ministry, Roy, you name any ministry, and I tell you examples of egregious waste. We need a value-for-money audit on everything, this, on every single ministry. You put infrastructure. That's yeah. one of the big things in this, in this budget. They're promising $190 billion on infrastructure over 13 years. Incredible that they're making promises for 2030. Mr. Brown, I'm going to have to let you go because of the time, but we will have you back soon, and we'll talk about all of this wonderful mathematics. I look forward to it, yeah. Have a good day. Thank you. Patrick Brown, the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party leader. We haven't heard enough from Mr. Brown or from the New Democrats. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Well, we, uh, we remember speaking many times during the election campaign, the primaries, and then the election itself with Fran Coombs, managing editor of Rasmussen Reports, Rasmussen Polling, RasmussenReport.com. And uh, Fran very early spoke very positively about Donald Trump's chances, I think maybe even a day or so before I did. Anyway, he's back with us after 100 days of Donald Trump presidency. Our friend Fran Coombs from Rasmussen is back with us. Fran, thank you for taking the time on uh, on an almost May weekend, Trump's 100 uh, first days. Um, when it comes to Americans and their view of the president's performance, does it break down to Republicans support him, Democrats don't? That's, that's pretty much the case, Roy. Uh, I mean, to, to no surprise. I mean, you know how, how strong the passions were after this election. 
And uh, that's what we're seeing in our polls. Republicans, most Republicans like Trump's proposals. They like what he's doing. They like his job, the job he's doing. Uh, but Democrats feel even more strongly uh, that they don't like the job he's doing. They don't like his proposals. Uh, and unaffiliated voters are kind of in between. They're, they're lukewarm on Trump. So I also heard or read something day before yesterday, I think it was, that if the election were held today, the same election, Trump versus Clinton, Trump would win again. I saw the, I saw the headline on that poll. I never did get a chance to look at the methodology. But, yes, they showed Trump, I think, winning by a couple points. Um, wouldn't surprise me. I mean, Hillary Clinton, as you know, had a lot of negatives. We talked about this a lot last fall. Uh, and the... A lot of the major media was so fixated on the kind of the Trump circus show uh, that I think that they weren't really looking at the fact that Hillary Clinton was just a very weak candidate. Fran, when you look at the 100 days of Donald Trump's presidency, I think he signed 30 executive orders. I think that's the number, maybe 25. Anyway, somewhere between 25 and 30. What is his most significant achievement, and what would you categorize as his most disappointing failure, something that may trail him around for some time? Well, I think there's no question that the failure, and I don't know that you can really lay it at his feet, is the failure to do anything at all about Obamacare. Uh, Admittedly, Obamacare is such a big mess that it's probably unrealistic to expect someone to be able to turn that thing around in a short time. But the Republican Congress has been talking trash about this law and trying to repeal it for seven years. And it's kind of disappointing that all of a sudden, once they're in power with a president who agrees with them, that they can't seem to get anything out of the House. Um, as far as his accomplishments, I think the larger issue, really, as far as Trump is concerned, Roy, is that he's just change—he's just changing the entire tone and direction of what the government's all about. Uh, I mean, Obama was all about big government, more government. Whatever the cost, you can't do anything without the help of the government. Uh, even small businesses have only made it because of the government. Uh, whereas Trump is the exact opposite of that. He is getting government, uh, trying to get government out of people's lives and out of their way. It seems to me, and I've been you know, watching this particularly the last 30 days, uh, maybe month and a half, Ryan, that as the days click along, and uh, President Trump did say in an interview with Reuters, I think, that he wasn't ready to be the President of the United States. But it seems to me now in the last few weeks, they understand that they're going to be on the receiving end of protest after March, after protest after March from the left, whether it's political, whether it's, uh, you know, social uh, engineering, whether whatever it is, they're going to be on the other end of the receiving end of marches. And I think they've gotten comfortable with the idea, and they've said, it seems to me, that they've said, we're just going to go on and do our job in government and to hell with them. Right. And I think that's exactly what they should do, and that's exactly what they are doing. Um, but it's interesting. I think the, uh, to, to grab a cliche, I think the left, the, the Democratic Party has a tiger by the tail, because I, I assume you have seen these reports about where leftist protesters have been going after Democrats now. Uh, going after Tom Perez, the new DNC chairman, and uh, going after Dianne Feinstein in San Francisco, saying uh, that they're not far enough to the left. Um, so I think the Democrats may find themselves, the Democratic leadership may find themselves in a very sticky position when they've got these folks who are advocating really extreme uh, left-wing policies that clearly are not supported by the majority of voters. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're under attack. The Democrats are under attack, too, from these same folks.
Yeah, I think sometimes when you grab the tiger by the tail, the result is inevitable. Or somebody said years ago, the the scenery only changes for the lead dog in a mushing team. (laughs) Right. Right. Let me Uh, me take a quick break. It's interesting to me that Feinstein was the subject of serious protest out there because because she wouldn't embrace a single-payer system. Yeah, Yeah. there's a a lot of ultra-left attitude in the United States, or certainly it sounds like a lot. Maybe it's a little, but they make a lot of noise. Right. They get a lot of attention. They get a lot, a lot of attention. Of there exactly. Are, there's, there's more organization to that crowd than people would suspect. Well, well, Franny, is there this alliance between mainstream media in the United States and and and, uh, and the left in politics and the left, left in, in, in the world of education? Have they formed either, um, you know, a, a specific and defined alliance or is it just a fly by the seat of your pants alliance? Their 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 combined objective is to harm Donald Trump. Which one is it? Well, I I think there's no. I mean, alliance I think is too strong a word, Roy. They definitely have shared very strong shared interests. Um, I mean, the academic community in the United States has been moving hard to the left for decades, as you yeah, know, and yeah. and uh, has just gotten worse and worse. I mean, they're completely out of step with the average American. Um, so naturally, they 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 agree with and are some of these far left protesters and people. Um, the media, to me, there's a combination of factors with the media. The, the media is definitely sympathetic. It's it's there's a lot of youth and inexperience in the media, so there's a lot of sloppy mistakes that didn't That's used right. to be made. Uh, a lot of things are defined as media now that wouldn't have been considered media even ten years ago. Um, so I think the media, th- there may be some, there's sympathy in the media for the left, but I think there's more to it than, uh, you know, it's not as, as simple as an alliance, if you will. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Mr. President, do you fear a trade war with Canada, sir? Do you fear a trade war with Canada, sir? No, not at all. Why not? They have a tremendous surplus with the United States. Whenever they have a surplus, I have no fear. By the way, virtually every country has a surplus with the United States. We have massive trade deficits. So when we're the country with the deficits, we have no fear. President Donald Trump on the issues confronting uh, the United States and Canada and Mexico with NAFTA. Now, he was going to cancel NAFTA, as you know, and uh, then had a conversation with President Nieto of uh, Mexico. And who's the guy in Ottawa? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Trudeau, the second. And, uh, and, and and so the word, Fran, is that uh, President Nieto and Prime Minister Trudeau talked Donald Trump out of, uh, you know, his plan to dump NAFTA. What's the real story here? What's going well, on? Yeah, I, don't, I don't buy that at all. I think Trump basically forced them all both to the table. I mean, he, he came out and said, I'm going to scrap NAFTA. And all of a sudden, within 36 hours, the headline was that Canada and Mexico have agreed to renegotiate. Uh, so I think Trump, you know Trump's a negotiator. I think he got exactly what he wanted so far. So this was the opening shot. Yeah. And he knew, and, what, was, he and, knew what was going to happen, right? He knew, he knew he'd get calls from Mexico and Ottawa. Of course, and he knew that the media in this country would denounce him, and you know the New York Times would declare that it was the end of the world and that kind of thing. He, he knows what to expect all that kind of stuff. So what should we be doing in this country? You understand Washington. You were an editor of the Washington Times for many years. You know how the system works. Should this country be looking actively to do business with other parts of the world and consider the Trump administration to be, if not antagonistic, then certainly unpredictable? No, I would I, actually, I think the Trump administration is probably going to be very predictable. I think I think what... 
what we're seeing is is that we've had, as Trump himself said, or, or the perception at least is, that we've had politicians negotiating trade agreements while your country and others have had their best and brightest business people involved in these things. The United States has not. And so Trump wants to get get some of, some of the American business know-how at the negotiating table. And I think, I mean, I, you know, a businessman wants stability, so the last thing Trump wants to do is have a market that's constantly in flux. He just wants to get better deals for the United States. What are you going to do to North Korea? What do you think? That's going to be very interesting to see. I think this guy, he's not going to fool around. I mean, if his, I think if his people tell him that this guy legitimately is in a position to launch a nuclear missile, I think he's going to knock hell out of North Korea. And that, who knows what happens then, right? And that's right. A, well, I mean, the thing is, I mean, North Korea has no, they have no support anywhere in the world. I mean, no, they even they have, again, if there's one thing Trump has done in the last two or three weeks, he's gotten the Chinese to finally turn up the pressure on North Korea. Uh, but clearly the perception of a lot of people in the world is is that this guy, uh, I mean, all the talk, we've, everybody's been laughing at all this talk for, for several years now. Yeah. But, I mean, now they're getting to the point where, the talk keeps coming, and if this guy doesn't back down in the face of these, uh, you know, heavy-duty, hardline pressure from the United States and others, that suggests that maybe he is never going to back down. Yeah, it's the haircut. Yeah, <laughs> those those are strange folks. It's a haircut. It really is the haircut. And uh, you know, and obviously, you know, too, Obama. That was one of his biggest well, points yeah. to Trump on inauguration day was yeah. beware of North Korea. Why is there no complaining? The United States, or in the United States, or or, um, or France, for example, that Obama placed a support call to the opponent of Marie Le Pen for the French presidency. So there's U.S. interference, not to mention the hundreds of thousands of dollars the Obama administration delivered to Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, opponents prior to and during the most recent Israeli election. U.S. clearly has a, has a history of interfering uh, with the election in Israel and appears to be interfering, although he's now a private citizen, Obama in the French election. Yeah, I don't know that the U.S. used to have that kind of, used to interfere like that. I think Obama has taken that to a new level. Uh, and I think the reason there's not more of a flurry of, of concern here is in Obama's ancient history. I mean, it, it, the Republicans just want him off stage, and they're not going to investigate him any more than they're going to, inve- going to investigate Hillary Clinton. So uh, how do you see the next 100 days developing for Donald Trump? Are things going to settle down, or will we just not know until whatever happens, happens? Well, I mean, I think Trump is, uh, he's made it pretty clear that it's full speed ahead. I mean, he wants tax reform. Uh, The Republicans appear to be uh, putting together some kind of Obamacare package. Uh, I mean, yes, we're going into the summer, and Congress traditionally takes long recesses. Uh, but I think, you know, Trump's going to keep the pressure on them to do some things. And um, so so I think we can expect a, a lot to happen. Uh, but but I, I, the one thing I'm really curious about, Roy, is how much Americans can continue to stomach all this negativity on the left. Yeah. Just how much longer. I think people are already tuning it out a I think lot. So. Uh, and I just, I'm just wondering how long the left can kind of keep up this. Uh, just constant nattering no, no, no all the time. Well, it's their version of the Play-Doh that they were looking for previously. Uh, Fran, thank you very much for uh, for taking the time to join us. I just wanted to say this, that whenever Donald Trump missteps as president of the United States, you know that we have a fellow in Ottawa who will call him and correct him. Oh, well, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah.
Just that, that'll keep that'll keep Trump on the line. I, well, absolutely, yeah. So you can share that. That's not a that's not an exclusive story. That's <laughs> it, Roy, it could be fake news. Up, <laughs> it, it could be fake news, though, Fran. I don't know. <laughs> you never know these days. Never know. Thanks for the time. I really appreciate. It. Good talking to you, my friend. Okay, my pleasure as always. Bye bye, Fran Coombs, managing editor, of Rasmussen Polling, joining us from. I don't know where he was joining us from. United States. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Professor Alan Lichtman is a distinguished professor of history at American University in Washington, D.C. He's the author and co-author of eight books, including The Case for Impeachment. I don't know if it's the case for impeachment of Donald Trump or the case for impeachment, but Professor Lichtman has said, from what I understand, that the impeachment of Donald Trump is unavoidable, and he's correctly predicted each presidential election victory since 1984, and that includes Trump versus Clinton. And Professor Lichtman was on the air with us during the election campaign. And Professor Lichtman, I think you and I might have been the only ones that day who were saying Donald Trump was going to win. We should claim total credit for that. I think so. I think we deserve. What? I think we deserve a round of golf at Mar-a-Lago or something. At least without paying the ten thousand dollars, right? Boy, you never know what we might come up with next. Correct. Let me be. Put our heads together. Put our heads together. Let's be serious about about this. Okay. You, you were correct about Donald Trump winning on November the eighth of last year. Remind us, please, of the factors that caused you to make this prediction when you made it. Well, I was able to make my prediction of a Donald Trump victory by ignoring the polls, stopping my ears to the pundits, and not looking at the day to day events of the campaign. Rather, I used my system, the keys to the White House which, as you said, has been right since 1984, and looks at the big picture. Essentially, the the thesis is that elections are primarily referenda on the strength and performance of the party holding the power, and that's what I looked at. And I was able to discern the reasons why this was going to be a change election. The Democrats had taken a big pasting in the midterm elections. They were trying to defend an open seat, always hard to do. They had these pesky third-party candidates running way over their head. They had an unexpectedly contentious nomination struggle. The Obama administration, faced with a Republican Congress, didn't follow up the Affordable Care Act with a big domestic accomplishment in the second term. They didn't follow up the dispatch of bin Laden with a big foreign policy triumph in the second term. So they were kind of running on empty, and that's what I made my prediction on. Didn't make me real popular at American University in Washington, D.C., not exactly a Republican stronghold. No, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. I I took a lot of flack. People said, you know, Lickman, where'd you get your degree from? Mail order. People threatened, you know, we're going to call the president and get rid of you. But, of course, I have something called tenure. Good for you. Universities have become, instead of the bastions of, uh, of, of investigation, they become the bastion of intolerance when it comes to anybody. Well, people at the university themselves. Over at the university was just fine. These were who knows who, just a bunch of outsiders. No, no, the university yeah, well, was absolutely fine. Yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, absolutely. But, but there are also students who get swept up in it all. And, and then they get engaged, get involved. And I just worry because that's the generation, at least these are the people who will try to get to the front of the line of managing our countries in the years to come. They're, they're trying to get to the front of the line now. They won't stop. So that, that's well, just I, a concern. Know, I, I try to give my, teach my students fidelity to facts, 
analysis, information, Wonderful. openness to all points of view, and, and I think American University stands for that. Good. Now, uh, so many people thought you were mad or were very disturbed in your prediction. Uh, it's okay. I got. You should see the emails. I could. I could publish your book as well, just with the emails I received. Did well, your now pre- I've made the other half mad at me, so I've succeeded in making. Yeah, so you're going to be a really. You're going to be a really popular guy walking down the street. Yeah. <laughs> did your Did your prediction at all suggest how well or how poorly Donald Trump would initially perform as president? No, my prediction wasn't based on his campaign or Donald Trump at all. As I said. What I look at is the strength and weakness of the party holding the White House and seeing whether it's a change or a status quo election. Okay, so now we know what happened. Donald Trump is the president of the United States. The protests have been never ending. And you say that an impeachment effort against President Trump is virtually certain. Let me ask you to hold on, Professor Lichtman. I want to come back and talk to you about that, about what it is that makes an impeachment effort or an impeachment of Donald Trump virtually certain. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Back with Professor Alan Lichtman, uh, Professor of History, Distinguished Professor of History at American University in Washington, D.C., and the author of The Case for Impeachment. Professor Lichtman, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that now an impeachment effort against President Trump is virtually certain. That it's not a matter of if, but when. Is this an effort to impeach which will fail as the impeachment effort against Bill Clinton failed, or do you predict or see a, uh, an impeachment of the, of the current president? Well, I'm, I'm not going at this point farther than impeachment. I lay out in my book eight possible grounds that Donald Trump could be impeached on based on the history of impeachment, the process, Donald Trump's own history in his first few months. It's much harder, though to get a president removed, as you quite correctly point out. Impeachment only requires a majority vote of the House. If the Democrats are adamant about it, it only would take about two dozen Republicans to defect. That's just about 10% of Republicans in the House. And about that many sit in districts, one by Hillary Clinton, a good number other are in vulnerable districts, and they may decide that Trump is a liability to their survival, which is the first rule of politics, and they may be willing to join with the Democrats. Conviction is much harder. Conviction requires two-thirds vote of the United States Senate after a trial. Neither impeached President Andrew Johnson or Bill Clinton was convicted, and Richard Nixon, of course, resigned before he got impeached and probably would have been convicted according to the leadership of his own party. So if a president is impeached, to a person who doesn't understand what that term means, or perhaps believes it means the president is removed from office, what happens to a president? You're listening to The Roy Green Show, if weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. By two-thirds vote, you are removed, the vice president becomes president, and the vice president, under the 25th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, gets to pick his own president. And meanwhile, the removed president, unless pardoned like Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon, is subject to prosecution for any crimes he may have committed. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends it's from a risky card to on play AM 900 CHML. Political party to begin impeachment proceedings against a president who 
even though the perception might be that, that, that Trump is, is not popular, has no chance of building popularity, still I would think would be a risky proposition because you, you tend to alienate or you stand to alienate many people who may not be a fan of the president but accept the fact that he is and don't like the idea of a, what would be seen like a, an Ides of March attack on the president yeah. and the presidency. Well, I think you have a very good point there, which is why I'm not advocating the book. We write articles of, of, of impeachment now. I'm just trying to help people in America and around the world arm themselves with the knowledge to follow the Trump presidency. Obviously, there would have to be some serious threat, which is quite possible to our Constitution, our liberties, or our national security. And there are some pretty clear uh, warning signs that could very well be serious enough for impeachment. Obviously, the whole Russian situation. You know, we drip, drip, drip. There are revelations almost every day about contacts between and ties between the Russian team, excuse me, the Trump team and the Russians. And if Trump knew about that, and there was collusion with the attack on American democracy, that's a very serious crime. It's called misprision of treason. If he himself was involved. He could become the first president charged with treason. And then there is this conflict of interest that crop up all the time because he didn't follow the advice that I include in the case for impeachment, which is to divest himself from his business interests. Yeah, he'd take a financial hit, but he's a billionaire and he'd still be a billionaire. And no one forced him to run for president. But there is no clear evidence of any wrongdoing by Donald Trump. Well, we, we're waiting the results of the Russian investigation. I understand, but there is evidence. And the thing about the conflicts of interest is there is something in our Constitution called the Emoluments Clause, which says you can't take anything of value, an emolument, from a foreign right, government right. Yeah, I understand. entities. But it's absolute. It doesn't require a quid pro quo. And already, and there are a lot of suspicions of a quid pro quo, Trump got... A final approval for 38 potentially lucrative trademarks from China at a time that he had moved away from his flirtation with the two China policy and abandoned his pledge to declare China a currency manipulator on day one. Is his, let me finish one quick point, is his policies being influenced by his pocketbook? We don't know, and that's the rub, and that's why this clause is in the Constitution and is absolute. I understand, but there's no evidence that Donald Trump's done anything wrong yet. Oh, that is wrong. I think it's very wrong to be president of the United States and have your financial interests padded by foreign governments in violation of the Constitution. I think that's very, very wrong. Prior to the election, when all balls were in play, John Podesta from what I understand, Hillary Clinton's right-hand man, had ongoing business relations in Russia with Russia. That's never brought up. You're deflecting. You're sounding like Trump. I'm not deflecting. I'm bringing up up a point. No, no, John Podesta. President of the United States. Not John Podesta, for God's sake. No, 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 but he's a member of the team. People talk about the Trump team having relationships or relations in Russia. Podesta was a member, a significant member of the, just a sec, Professor, Podesta was a significant member of Hillary Clinton's team, so if he had business arrangements and deals in Russia, that's also an issue. Well, it isn't, it isn't because she's not the president. president, If she were president, I would say, if she's in violation of the emoluments clause, if she were president, 
and was in violation of the emoluments clause, or members of her team were colluding with Russians and attacking our democracy, absolutely I'd apply the same standards. But it's irrelevant. She's not the president. Well, I know, but uh, there's also the issue of the uh, the Clinton Foundation. We could bring all the accusations about you can bring all what's you, you know. I mean, there's there's so many. There's there's professor, professor. You sound like you're. you're you, no, no, no. You sound you you sound like you want to attack Trump. I'm just looking for the story. I'm not. I there's only one president of the United States. Hillary Clinton cannot be impeached. I didn't write. No, a I book get that. I understand that. For impeaching Hillary Clinton, she's not. President, if she no, no, I, I understand that. But what I'm saying is there has to be proof. There has to be proof. And right now there's no proof. And I just cited some things that you that you deflected to John Podesta after I cited now, that's a, it's, it's, them. It's a point that I wanted to get an answer from because you would have the answer and I don't. On John Podesta, I don't have any answers on. John well, you Podesta. would know what it, you would you would Donald know Trump if it's you would know, President Professor, you would know if it's a dangerous area for him to be in. I don't know. I'm not an expert on American history or American law. You are. Look, we're we're going down a rat hole here because you've done what Donald Trump did when he said uh, Barack Obama wiretapped my phones. Irrelevant to what Donald Trump is doing. I asked a question, Professor. I asked her a question. I have not looked into John Podesta and don't intend to. If well, someone wants to look into the point that, that I believe I believe that my point is valid and my question was valid. If you don't believe it is and you don't want to answer it, that's up to you. I don't really care. No, but you, you're, you're no, I don't you're care. Deflecting. I'm not deflecting, I'm not Professor. I'm not deflecting, and you're wasting my time now. All right, we're done. We're done. Sounds we're good done. to me. All the best to you. Good luck with the book, whatever it's called. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML. Three-and-a-half-year-old, this is important, three-and-a-half-year-old Greta Marofsky of Calgary has a rare recurrent liver cancer. Now, she was treated with surgery and chemotherapy in Calgary, but the cancer's recurrence made Greta ineligible for a liver transplant in Alberta. And then they checked it out in Ontario, and Ontario similarly said no. So the family's desperate. They want to get a treatment for their daughter. They want to save their daughter's life. What family, what parents wouldn't. So they heard about uh, a doctor in Cincinnati who was expert in this particular this particular cancer. And um, hepatoblastoma. And so they went to um, Cincinnati and they investigated. They did some work and they investigated and they found that the liver transplant is doable. But it's going to be about $600,000, maybe more. Does the Canadian bureaucracy have a heart and open up its wallet and uh, dispense some of our money that we provide to governments in order to take care of three-and-a-half-year-old children who have a life-threatening illness? Oh, no. The bureaucracy does not, does not uh, engage because they have their rules and regulations that they have to follow, and they're comfortable following. Global News, I'm just reading from a Global News story. Just uh, listen to this. Global News reached out to Alberta Health Services to find out why Greta was deemed ineligible for a transplant in Alberta. The following statement was provided. A cancer diagnosis is a challenge for every family. Our thoughts remain with Greta and her family during this difficult time. The Pediatric Liver Transplant Program, in partnership with hepatology and oncology teams at the Stollery Children's Hospital, examines all cases of pediatric patients with recurring 
hepatoblastoma on a case-by-case basis. The program has and may proceed with listing a patient for transplant depending on the individual's specific medical condition. What does that mean? That's just a long way of saying no by people who have no right to make that decision because we did not empower them to make that right, to take that decision. This is a three-and-a-half-year-old Canadian child. And this is, this is so throwaway that it's, it's absolutely disturbing. Our thoughts remain with Greta and her family during this difficult time. What does that mean? What does that mean? This is a little girl and her parents and her family and her community. You people should all disappear from your jobs, and let's get some people in those jobs who have some sense of empathy and caring and will actually produce some results for a little child. Good Lord. Lindsay Morofsky joins me. She's Greta's mom. Greta, uh, Lindsay, this is, this is just, I have no idea how you must be feeling, but it, it, it has to be so contrary to everything you believed about in this country. It really is. It really shocked us from the beginning when they came at back right away and just denied her. Um, and just hearing you read that statement again, those feelings come back. And, and, you know, now I've learned a lot more. They have never done a transplant in this type of situation before. They say no to all the children in this type of situation. So it's, it's really frustrating and really surprising. As, as a Canadian and an Albertan, you never expect to be in this type of situation. But here we are. <laughs> so they have never done the kind of surgery that Greta requires. They have never done it. They've they've recently done one. I know I know the mother very well. Um, they've recently done one, um, but but when they originally told us no, they had never approved a type of surgery this type of surgery before here in Alberta. Do they actually call you and talk to you at any time, or do they just send you these little these 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 notes? We've never talked to them. They, it all goes through our doctors. So our doctors sent Greta's case up to the Celery in Edmonton. They apparently reviewed her case there and came back and said no. And all they said was no. We weren't given any more information. Um, we've sort of pieced together a little bit of information on our own um, with the doctors on, on why we think they've said no. But um, they, we've never had any communication with the um, decision makers up in Edmonton who have made this decision. Lindsay, can you uh, are you okay to share with us what your thinking is about why they said no? Or is... uh, yeah, they so um, part of it is in, in Canada and especially in Alberta, um, it's hard to get approved for for an organ because um, we just don't have the population and our organ donation donor population is very low, so they're very particular on who they approve for um, organ to receive organs. But also, they need to what they do is look at published. Um, research and because we're talking about pediatric cancer there's really not a lot of research that goes on at any point in time for pediatric cancer so the type of statistics that they're looking at to make these decisions the papers were published 12 13 years ago so the data is 20 20 years maybe even older than that so the data they're looking at um, is, is really old data and in what they told us is it doesn't meet their expected outcomes to go forward. This particular paper, um, the outcomes, the survival outcomes for this type of surgery were about 40%, um, but that was many, many, many years ago. Um, and, you know, the research just isn't being done, and this is how they're making decisions up, up in our Canadian system is off this research. And I don't, you know, now that I've, you know, I found this doctor in Cincinnati, this team in Cincinnati, they've been doing this. They've been doing this surgery. They've been treating this disease for a long time, and they've done this surgery 
Um, it doesn't happen a lot because this is a very rare instance, but they've done this surgery six times and five of those children are doing very well years later. So, you know, I'll take those odds at this point. So So they they don't care about the five out of six successful surgeries the team in Cincinnati has done. They're going with data that's 20, maybe 20 years old. And it's, it's the path of least resistance for them. They just go and they have a look at what, what their regulations say and what the regulations are based on, and then they send you this vacuous line. Our thoughts remain with Greta and her family during this difficult time. Tell us how difficult the time is, Lindsay. Oh, it's, it's really difficult, too. You know, as a parent, you never imagine yourself in this type of situation, with, especially with a really young child. Um, you know, and then the first diagnosis, um, it's... It, was devastating. I can't even describe it. It's sort of like an out-of-body experience. Um, she did really, really well with the first treatment. And then when she was diagnosed with the relapse, it was, it was almost like, okay, what are we going to do? Like, let's just get this going. Let's, let's fight this. Um, and then when we were denied the transplant right off the bat, you know, our team here, our doctors here were really surprised. We were all really surprised. You know, as a Canadian, you just never expect to be in this type of situation where you're looking elsewhere for care and looking looking elsewhere to pay for that care too it's 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 really devastating and you know the days are long and hard and and what gets us through it is Greta her little smile and she nothing slows her down much so her she's got the fighting spirit and she keeps us going so you're going to go ahead with the surgery right yes we're going ahead with the surgery um we are heading down to Cincinnati next weekend, and we will be there waiting for a liver for Greta. And they're telling you that's fine. You can go there and do it, but you're going to yes. pay it, pay for it yourself. We're not giving you any any financial support at all. That's what we've been told thus far. We are still pursuing, trying to pursue um, political avenues, and, and we've reached out for help for some to some MLAs in our area and to try and figure out how to navigate this system, but it's, it's really difficult to figure out what to do. But thus far... We've been told no, we won't get any support. Um, so we're, we're having to figure it all out ourselves. It's atrocious. It's absolutely atrocious that they would have the goal to inform you by, by note yep. that your, your daughter doesn't matter to them. Mm-hmm. They don't care. You're, they don't exactly, care about you. Yes, they don't couldn't exactly care less. They they couldn't care less. That little line, our thoughts remain with Greta and her family during this difficult time. All that tells me is they don't care at all about your daughter or about you. Mm-hmm. That's how it felt when they came back with that. It was like, like I felt like they hardly even considered it. They didn't even look at her case. They just flat out said no right off the bat. And, it, and yeah, it was it was shocking. It was you know really surprising. Yeah, you're trying to deal with the fact that your daughter is is battling a, a, a virulent form of cancer, and there is opportunity for her not only to survive but to mm-hmm. prosper and to and to thrive, which has been proven by the doctors in Cincinnati and your and your and your bureaucracy in Alberta by the the benevolent government of of of, of Premier Notley um, decides you know with the advice of the lab coats that, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. So you go ahead and have it done in, in Calgary, in, in, in Cincinnati, and then when your daughter does well after the surgery, they'll, you know what they'll do? They'll say, oh, I think we're going to start doing this kind of surgery now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's going to cost you at least, right now it looks like it's going to cost your family at least $600,000. U.S., yeah, $600,000 U.S. is what we're what we're being told. And that's if everything goes smoothly. And you, very often with these types of surgeries, there's some sort of complication, even minor ones, that will mm-hmm. add to that cost as right. well. 
And, uh, and, and so you're looking for assistance wherever you can find it. I clearly understand that. I do the same thing. All of us would do the same thing, trying to help our loved ones. You have a GoFundMe page. Please tell us about that. Yeah, we started the GoFundMe page as soon as we started um, talking with Cincinnati and looking like this is really a possibility. It's, it's uh, GoFundMe.com slash Greta's Guardians. Or if you look up Greta's Guardians, um, that's what it's under. We've got a website www.gretasguardians.com as well and there's all kinds of information on there updates on Greta and how to donate and the GoFundMe page has been doing really well um, the support we've seen this far has been nothing short of amazing and really uplifting in this in this difficult time so it's gof, gofundme.com is the, uh, is the of course the website and then it's Greta's Guardians yeah and then Greta's it's Guardians. it's also on the web it's gretasguardians.com right yeah and wouldn't it be wonderful if the people of this country were to step up and everybody contributes something and, and, and then the surgery is paid for, Greta gets another chance, a first chance really at life, and then it turns into a success. And, and then what do they say? It doesn't matter what they say because your daughter will have, have succeeded in, in, in becoming healthy again. I, you deserve every opportunity. Greta deserves every opportunity, and you can't convince me that if it were a cabinet minister or a prime minister or a premier's child, you can bet the funds would be there. Just my that, sense. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Lindsay, all the very best to you and your family. You're at a, you're at a fundraiser right now, eh? Yeah, there's a big fundraiser in Calgary today at the Ghetto Boys Bar and Grill, and it's it's doing amazing. We've got 30 bands out here today auction items, all kinds of, the volunteers are amazing. It's a very awesome event that's going on right now. That's so, cool. So yeah. so tell our listeners in the Calgary area how they get to you. Uh, just go to Ghetto Boys. It's on 16th Avenue and 7th Street um, in the Northwest. And uh, you can just show up here, buy tickets here. It's, it's really cool. Lots of local artists. Um, uh, the music, the food, all, everything's been donated. The, the drinks, the food, everything. So all the proceeds are coming to us to help with Greta and her care. So and it's it's pretty amazing event. That's fantastic. And remember, it's all for a three-and-a-half-year-old child who's been considered to be, uh, uh, what's the line again? Our thoughts remain with Greta and her family during this difficult time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to stay in touch with you. Wish you all the very best. We'll urge our listeners to get involved, get engaged, get at the GoFundMe page. Check out uh, um, Greta's Guardians on GoFundMe.com, also the website as well. And we'll stay in touch and... I, 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 just, I just have a feeling things are going to be okay. I really hope so anyway. I really do. Thank you so much. We're doing everything we can. So thanks for having I'm me. I'm sure you are. Terrific parents. Thank you, Lindsay. We'll, we'll definitely stay in touch with you. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Lindsay Marofsky. It's a three-and-a-half-year-old child. I know I've said some harsh things. It's what I believe. I'm talking about a three-and-a-half-year-old child. Where's your responsibility quotient? Where? What do you, how do you decide these things? Want to hear more? Download the podcast on iTunes or Google Play and listen to The Roy Green Show weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.